The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACHR Nand, your host, and I'm delighted to welcome back my good friend for our Thursday show, Dr. Peter Hammond. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you very much, Peter. And um, before we start today's show, uh, Peter and I have been having a good chat. And it turns out, do you mind if I mention the show that you were on recently, Peter? Oh, you're most welcome. Excellent. Well, what we've got here is, you might have heard of the uh, Irish journalist, uh, Gemma O'Doherty. And she's a fantastic journalist, and she got in touch with Peter. And they recorded a show on June the 7th. So what we've done is, um, I've got the video here, it's on a platform I can't quite work out, it's directly on her site, so you have to watch the video on her site, it's a video of her and Peter, and it's a show called Dr. Pete, The Fall of the West, Dr. Peter Hammond on Saving the Soul of Europe. So I'm going to include the link in the post for this show, folks, and I haven't seen it yet, or what have you, but um, I've certainly heard of Gemma O'Doherty, and the good thing about Gemma is that she comes from a mainstream media background, and she's essentially gone over to the independent media. And so rather than, you know, take the pearls that are offered there and she she's won awards for a campaigning journalist. She's uncovered, you know, police corruption. She's uncovered child abuse in Irish rugby, all these different things I could see. So she kind of was a proper trained mainstream journalist who then went independent when she woke up to the truth. And that's always a very brave move to make because it doesn't come without financial penalty that you're giving away um, the, you know, the, the, the benefits that you get out of working for the mainstream. I don't know, very few people in the independent media are going to make anything like you would make from the mainstream media. So we salute her for that. I'm delighted that Peter got on there and I will certainly be looking at that later. Peter, any comments regarding that before we move on? Yes, I, I was very encouraged. Uh, Southern Ireland often seems a bit of a wasteland, uh, very much EU oriented. And as I, I commented to uh, Gemma, uh, here this year, Ireland will be celebrating 100 years of the independence that they won from the British Empire in 1922. But how sad that they went from the British Empire into the European Union, uh, which, as I pointed out, is much worse. And she agrees that, uh, in fact, this this is Ireland is not free, 
and um, uh, putting themselves under the EU was a bad move. But she understands the big picture, the new world order, the globalist agenda, the great reset, uh, all of these different things and, and the battle for history and for our mind. And it's it's outstanding when we as Protestants can reach out and find here's a person in Catholic Ireland in Dublin from a mainstream media background who has had the courage to speak out on these things and get vilified and deplatformed. And uh, but um, it's good to have allies. We need to be team players and we need to understand that in this fight, there are people in every country, every society who haven't bowed the knee to bowl. When Elijah was depressed and he said, I only, I am left, the Lord said, no, I've got 7,000 others who have not yet bowed the knee to bowl. And we can praise God. There are many more than 7,000 around the world of the remnant who have not bowed the knee, who see clearly, who are resisting. And we need to be friends and encouragers with them. Absolutely. And this is something I covered recently with Giuseppe at the weekend. We need to look beyond any potential differences that we have and see the enemy and unite on our similarities. And the fact that someone might be of a, a Catholic persuasion rather than a Protestant persuasion like Peter and I, the fact that they know Jesus Christ is quite a rare thing these days. And so I think that you need to look at people out there, look at the information they put out. Uh, I have a very good friend called Eric Gajewski of tradcatnight.org that I do shows with every month. He's a traditional pre-Vatican II Catholic. He comes out with some excellent information. There's other people like E. Michael Jones, who's been on the show that I respect, who again comes out with some excellent information. And then Bishop Richard Williamson, who I was privileged to have on the show a few mm. times, who also has come out with excellent information. And you'll never hear in any of those shows me um, putting forward the Protestant um, doctrine against the Catholic doctrine and looking for an argument because we don't need arguments now. We need unity so we can come together against this uh, foe that we're facing worldwide. So with that in mind, that sets us up nicely for the topic for today's show, which is the real story of a formidable fighter for the faith. And this is a tribute to Dorothea Scarborough, who sadly passed away recently. Peter, where would you like to start us off with this? Dorothea Scarborough is an inspiring figure. She lived through tumultuous times uh, from the thousand bomber raids and the fire bombings of cities where she was brought up in Lubeck. Her city was the first city bombed with fire bombing targeted. But I got to know Mr. Mrs. Dorothea Scarborough almost 40 years ago after my very first mission to Mozambique in 1982, uh, she sought me out and interviewed me for her Vox Africana magazine. It, it's a German magazine that went uh, all over um, uh, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and other German-speaking parts of the world. And um, she interviewed me about the mission to Mozambique, to Mozambique with love, the persecution of the church there. The next thing, I was being invited to speak at women's meetings uh, on communism, persecution, uh, the church. And uh, before our mission had a photocopy or an office, Mrs. Scarborough invited me to use her office. So Gospel Defense League, which is a ministry she set up to fight the, Arch the Archbishop Desmond Tutu liberation theology, hijacking of the church. Um, so Gospel Defense League became where I would go on my motorbike to make photocopies of our newsletters or Bible study and lecture notes. Well, over the years, Mrs. Scarborough became one of my most trusted advisors, an invaluable member of the Board of Frontline Fellowship. And uh, she was an extraordinary person, and you just kept 
finding out more things that were extraordinary. So, for example, uh, she was in the forefront of launching the Evangelical Fellowship of Congregational Churches, the EFCC. Her husband was a minister of the gospel, and uh, they were uh, involved in running a major church in, in Cape Town, Seapoint Congregational Church. And because of her hostility to World Council Churches, she said, we shouldn't be part of the Southern Council Churches or the World Council. And so they formed an alternative, the Evangelical Fellowship of Congregational Churches, and led many congregations out of the World Council into this Evangelical Council. And uh, uh, she also launched a whole lot of phenomenal movements. Uh, you can use in German, because the uh, World Council Church produced Ecunews or Ecumenical News. So she came out with Ecunews, short for United Christian Action News, and she did the German edition. Later, I did the English edition for it. And uh, she had founded Gospel Defense League to oppose uh, the the false gospel of the World Council Churches. You may think, well, how did some pastor's wife get the courage and audacity to do these sort of things? And, and she did a lot more. Well, you've got to go back to her background because uh, Mrs. Dorothy Scar was actually born on Valentine's Day, uh, 14th of February, 1936, the eldest of five children. And uh, she was in Lubeck and uh, she came from an extraordinary family her father was a judge and the receiver of revenue. Her brother, Theo, was president of the Supreme Court. Her uncle was a prime minister of Hanover. Well, Dorothy Olivet, as she was then, grew up in a Europe at war. On, although she was young at the time, she clearly remembers the trauma of the Allied bombing raids starting on the 28th of March, 1942, raining death and destruction upon Lübeck, her home in northern Germany. And the bombers came in three waves causing most of the destruction on Palm Sunday, 29th of March. Wellington and Stirling bombers dropped over 400 tons of bombs, including 25,000 incendiary devices. And a number of the 1.8-ton blockbusters dropped in the first wave, opened up the brick and copper roofs of the buildings, and in the following tens of thousands of incendiaries came through those openings and set fire to the insides of these buildings. This was the first firestorm bombing of any city. And Lübeck, an historic cultural center with many churches, uh, was targeted 28th and 29th of March, 1942. It destroyed the historic Lübeck Cathedral, St. Peter's Church, St. Mary's, and uh, you'll see how that's connected with her life story later. Over 25,000 people left homeless after that, that Palm Sunday bombing. Well, because Lübeck consisted of many timbered medieval buildings, some had been there 500, 600 years or more, uh, Officer Commanding Bomber Command Arthur Harris described Lubick as built more like a firelighter. And Harris wrote that Lubick went up in flames. It was a city of moderate size. It was not a vital target. It had no strategic interest. But it seemed to me better to destroy a town of moderate importance than to fail to destroy a large industrial city. And those are the words of Bomber Harris. Well, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin congratulated Winston Churchill when they met in the Soviet Union in 1942 on the destruction of Lubeck, expressing his satisfaction at what he called the merciless bombing. And he expressed the hope that such terror attacks, that's the word they use, terror attacks, would cause severe damage to the German public morale. Well, in actuality, the morale of the citizens in Lubeck and the other towns in Germany held up remarkably well throughout the traumatic war. And it never seemed that the civilian desire to resist and stand firm ever wavered. 
Mrs. Scarborough recalled seeing the sky red from the fires of the firebombing of nearby Hamburg and Kiel. In fact, her family moved to Kiel after their home was destroyed in Lübeck and they were bombed further in Kiel as well. But despite the devastation of her homeland, Dorothy Olivet grew up to love the Lord, to commit her life to following Jesus Christ and serving him. And the interesting thing is her husband, uh, she, she, because of the very depressed economic situation in Germany after the war, she went to England uh, to gain employment there. And uh, she met at a youth group, uh, at a congregational youth group, Charles Scarborough, who had just been converted. Um, and uh, she um, got engaged and they traveled back to Lübeck to be married in the cathedral at Lübeck in Germany in 1958. Well, as they were traveling in the train, coming into Lübeck station, there was a brass band and red carpet and uh, looked like the mayor of the town and all sorts of things then. So Charles Scarborough said, oh, there must be somebody very important on this train. And uh, his uh, fiance smiled because actually it was her that they were coming to greet. Her <laughs> father was a very important judge in the city and uh, her whole family were very important in the Supreme Court and as Prime Minister of Hanover and all of the rest. So um, the brass band was actually for her. And I don't think he understood that he had married into such a distinguished family. But they were married in the still bomb-damaged Lutheran Cathedral of Lübeck, Germany, with the snow literally coming through the still bomb-damaged roof into the insides of the building. So uh, married in the partly ruined, partly restored uh, Cathedral of Lübeck, 1958. Well, he then did his theological training uh, in and when he became pastor at Cemetery Road Congregational Church in Sheffield, England, he was also a member of the London Missionary Society and responsible for recruitment. And they managed to fill all the places that needed um, filling. But there was one place in the Gilbert Islands that they couldn't get a recruit for. And at one point, the pastor's wife, Dorothy Scarborough, looked at her husband, Charles, and said, can't you see God is calling you to fill that spot? And... Uh, Sure enough, they later became missionaries to the Gilbert Islands. Now, the Gilbert Islands is right on the equator in the Pacific Ocean. If you look at a map of the Pacific and you go straight north from New Zealand and you hit the equator, that's where the Gilbert Islands are. And funnily enough, the Gilbert Islands or the northern part of the Gilbert Islands used to be called the Scarborough Islands. So they were the Scarboroughs, Reverend Charles and Dorothy Scarborough, going to the Gilbert Islands, which once were the Scarborough Islands. And this is a ministry to people whose ancestors had been cannibals. In some cases, not just their grandfathers, but in some cases, even their fathers and uncles were involved in cannibalism. Even while they were there, there was a man who ate his uncle. Uh, so it's not that cannibalism had even totally been extinguished, but uh, there they were on the Pacific uh, uh, Ocean, on the equator in the Gilbert Islands, and uh, she is homeschooling their two little children. And... Um, Dorothy Scarborough had a tremendous time. There's some phenomenal pictures that I've got of her ministering with the people on the island. And there was all sorts of uh, amazing stories, like one early missionary uh, who was uh, there. Uh, he had said to the people, because um, when they finished their theological training and these pastors and evangelists were going to be mobilized to the different islands, the locals, uh, one of the rules that the London Missionary Society had is you can't send out a single um, uh, Missionaries, missionaries must be married. So this missionary put it to the um, theological graduates. Um, 
you need to decide. Um, you're going to be deployed, uh, distributed to the different missionary sites, um, stations over the next few days. Uh, I'm going to leave you for a few hours and you must decide who you're going to marry and um, we'll uh, come back in a few hours and you tell us. And it was all settled and everyone had worked out who they're going to marry and they had a large marriage ceremony and it all seemed to have worked out very well, surprisingly. <laughs> so, um, well, after four years serving with the London Missionary Society in the Gilbert Islands, there was a horrific decision made by the World Council of Churches. The World Council of Churches at Uppsala declared a moratorium on missions. No more missionaries allowed. It was all part of some kind of white privilege or whatever you call it. And so the missionaries were all recalled. And the Scarboroughs related how the islanders were distraught and weeping and pleading with them, please, to stay and to, you know, don't abandon them. They're their children. But the decision had been made, and the London Missionary Society agreed to withdraw the missionaries and close the mission. So all they could do was train the local people to run uh, the denomination, the schools and the churches they'd set up uh, as an independent congregational ministry and leave. And uh, Ms. Scarborough, of course, was deeply affected now, not only by the bombing, terror bombings of civilian centers, but now by the World Council Churches ordering missions to close and to pull all the missionaries from the field because it was considered that you needed a moratorium on missions. Now, in the 1960s, this is in the heart of the Cold War and the Soviet Union sending commissars and propagandists and political uh, agitators into all these areas throughout the Third World and raising revolution. And at this very key time, there are churches withdrawing their people and withdrawing the missionaries from the front lines of missions. And the, the result was catastrophic. Uh, there was a whole line of mission stations that had been set up already in the 1800s across the southernmost part of the Sahara Desert to stop the southward expansion of Islam. And those mission stations were very effective in not only converting the people of Nigeria and Chad and Central African Republic, uh, Southern Sudan and so on, uh, to Christ, but preventing the southward expansion of Islam. Well, of course, in the late 60s, when suddenly so many mainstream denominations and missions like London Missionary Society withdrew their missionaries. The result was catastrophic on every level, spiritually, religiously, politically, morally, uh, in, in every way. And it turned in many cases into many of those countries were torn apart by civil wars as Islamic jihadists advanced or communist terrorists and the Congo was torn apart. And all of these things happened as a direct result of United Nations and World Council Church's policy, which fits into the globalist agenda, which was to actually close down mission stations. And I don't know how many of our listeners are aware of the fact that, especially in 1960s, there was a wholesale handing over of church schools to governments throughout Africa and, I presume, other parts of the third world. In fact, in 1960s, and I was born 1960, so when I was born, most schools in Africa were church or mission schools. And by the time I got to high school, almost all those schools were in the hands of governments, and not always because the governments confiscate them. In many cases, the church denominations made a decision based on the World Council of Churches, moratorium missions to hand over their mission schools and their church schools to governments, in many cases, communist governments, or atheist governments, or Islamic jihadist governments. And so the damage done by the World Council of Churches was horrific and beyond comprehension to just think of the scope of this. Well, 
as the Scarboroughs were traveling on board ship back to England, they popped in or stopped at Table Bay in Cape Town and uh, sought the local Congregational Church and went to Seapoint Congregational Church for Sunday and uh, expecting to be back on the boat by the uh, early next week and back off to England. And when they met the people for tea after the service, and the people realized, here's a minister of the gospel, a congregational minister who's been a missionary in uh, under the London Missionary Society out in the Gilbert Islands. They immediately gave him a call uh, to pastor their congregation. And there on the spot, Dr. Charles Scarborough and his wife, Dorothea, accepted the call to pastor Seapoint Congregational Church, which they did for 25 blessed and fruitful years. And uh, it was during that time that they discovered that they were part of the World Council of Churches, and the very same World Council of Churches that had just closed down mission stations all over the globe and had sent them back. Uh, so uh, at, as a result of this, they pioneered the Evangelical Fellowship of Congregational Churches. And Mrs. Dorothea Scarborough was the first secretary of the EFCC, and she served as secretary of Evangelical Fellowship Congregational Churches for many years. Well, then she was invited to get involved in the Women's World Day of Prayer, and she became the leader of the Women's World Day of Prayer for many, many years. And she launched the German language magazine Vox Africana, <clears throat> or the Voice of Africa, and Yuka News, United Christian Action News to counter Ecu News. And then she founded the Gospel Defense League, which uh, she particularly saw the need to, and it was very simple, Roniard uh, pages at first, very uh, cheap, like one uh, page and two sides at first. And uh, and she would mail it, these things out, first of all, just by getting church yearbooks and uh, getting all the addresses and entering the addresses into databases and uh, sending out uh, mailings to all the pastors of each and every denomination that she could get addresses for. Dutch Reformed Church, Church of England, Anglican Church, Methodist, and so on. And her mailing list grew to 18,000 at the end on Gospel Defense League mail list. <clears throat> Some of her publications had over 100,000 copies printed. Now, this is a pastor's wife um, who's uh, just taken it upon herself to launch uh, a war against the World Council Churches, against Ecu News, and against Liberation Theology, knowing how dangerous it is to missions and how insidious it is in undermining uh, congregations in the third world that are seeking to grow. Well, uh, it was at about this time that I encountered Mrs. Scarborough because of my work across the board in Mozambique. She recognized this is courageous work, and she wanted a firsthand report on what a communist liberated country like Mozambique was. And I gave the, in the Killing Fields of Mozambique testimonies. And very soon I was recruited onto United Christian Action uh, which grew into quite a large network. And um, before I knew it, I was actually secretary of the United Christian Action, and I was going to different battles as well, where I had to fight against the liberation theologians. Well, one of the early, uh, very uh, interesting battles that we had, Mrs. Scarborough produced the booklet, The Archbishop and the Bible, the sayings of the most reverend Desmond Mapilo Tutu. Now, this is in 1986. Desmond Tutu had just been uh, railroaded into uh, and fast-tracked into being the uh, Archbishop of Cape Town, which is the same thing as, uh, like the Archbishop of Canterbury is the head of the Church of England in the British Isles. Well, the Archbishop of Cape Town's the head of the Church of England or Church of the Province of South Africa, not just for South Africa, but Namibia, Swaziland, Lesotho, 
uh, Botswana, um, large, even Mozambique was under his province. So the church of the province of South Africa is actually quite larger than the actual country of South Africa. It's more like Southern Africa. So he was being given the top Anglican post uh, in South Africa with more than 2 million Anglican members under his uh, official leadership. So Ms. Carver produced this booklet, The Archbishop and the Bible. On one side, it would have what Desmond Tutu says, and the other side, what the Bible says. So, you know, for example, Desmond Tutu um, discounting the deity of Christ, saying that Jesus was born illegitimately. And then on the other side, behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Um, from Isaiah 7, 14, Matthew 1, verse 23, Luke 1, verse 27. Uh, Desmond Tutu on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not limited to the Christian church. Mahatma Gandhi is a Hindu. The Holy Spirit shines through him. That's said at St. Albans Cathedral, Pretoria, 23rd 11, of the 11th month, 1978. On the other side, Jesus saying, The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he'll be a witness to me. He will glorify me, for he takes what is mine. He'll declare it to you. On the kingdom of God, Desmond Tutu says that the kingdom of God has arrived in Zimbabwe. Uh, that's in 1980 when Mugabe became dictator of Zimbabwe. So, uh, there's Tutu claiming that communist Zimbabwe was the kingdom of God arriving, like the kingdom of God comes from barrel of gun. On the other side, Miss Garber dealing with, well, Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. Unless you're born again, born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Desmond Tutu, for example, saying when he received his Nobel Peace Prize, I received this peace prize on behalf of the Winnie Mandela's and so on. Winnie Mandela is the one who is saying with our necklaces and our matches we'll liberate the country. This is the brutal burning to death of black town councillors and black pastors and others who were considered sellouts by the communists, putting this automobile tie over them and pouring gasoline or paraffin over them and sending them alight. Um, so uh, there he claims that he's uh, t receiving this in the name of a whole lot of ANC terrorists like Albert Susulu, Walter Susulu, Govan and Becky. On the other side, what the Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, uh, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. On the other side, Desmond Tutu saying, Nelson Mandela is my leader. And quoting Nelson Mandela saying, there's no alternative to the armed struggle, there's no room for peace, for struggle in South Africa, we must uh, take up armed struggle. And then Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. He'll have the light of life. And Desmond Tutu saying the West can go to hell when they refuse to put sanctions on South Africa. And Jesus saying, I'm the, I'm the Alpha and Omega. I have the keys of heaven and hell, uh, of death and hell. I'm alive forevermore. And all the different things. Desmond Tutu saying one young man with a stone in his hands can achieve more than I can with a dozen sermons. Now, Young men with the stones in their hands were at that moment stoning people to death on the roads, causing accidents and murdering people, stoning people to death, literally. And uh, uh, then, of course, what what the Bible says, that a man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that's not good. And speaking of all the different things, so, for example, Desmond Tutu making a statement that he, is, he thanks God that he's black because white people will have a lot to answer for at the Day of Judgment. And then on the other side, what the Bible says, that everyone will have to stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account for what they've done, and that God is no respecter of persons. Um, of Desmond Tutu saying uh, that, um, imagine if 
only in 30% of domestic servants and white households would poison the employees' food. And suppose you gave them all a vial of arsenic. They look after the white people's children. And is it not surprising that black residents haven't yet blown up school buses with white children? And all sorts of comments, you know, highly incendiary comments like that. And so um, next thing uh, on the other side of the page, Ms. Garber put what the Bible says, love your neighbor, uh, devise not evil against your neighbor, love does no wrong to his neighbor, love is a fulfillment of the law, whatever you wish that men would do to you, do to them, and so on. And um, when Desmond Tutu is quoted as saying, if the Russians invade South Africa, we will welcome them as saviors. And <laughs> there's salvation and no one else, there's no other name given unto heaven except that of Jesus Christ by which man must be saved. And and where Desmond Tutu says, I'm a revolutionary, every Christian must be a revolutionary. And of course, what the Bible says in Ephesians 4, put off the old nature, put on the new nature, created off the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And so on and on the different uh, things from Tutu calling uh, for sanctions, um, whereas, of course, the Bible says, do not deprive the poor of their uh, food. Uh, Desmond Tutu stating, I'm a socialist. I hate capitalism. We should use Marxist insights from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. And then what the Lord said, you know, uh, that um, a slack hand causes poverty. The hand of the diligent makes rich. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. And uh, remember the Lord your God. It's he who gives you power to get wealth. He may confirm your covenant. There was his quotes that if Jesus Christ came to South Africa today, uh, he would be detained. <laughs> um, then, of course, of what the Bible says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And all these different things. And she ends most powerfully this booklet with what Titus 1 says about a bishop. A bishop, as God's steward, must be blameless. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of goodness, master of himself, upright, holy, and self-controlled. He must hold firm to the sure word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction to sound doctrine and also confute those who contradict it. Well, that's just a quick race through. There's a lot more in this, the Archbishop in the Bible. Mrs. Scarborough printed 10,000 copies of this, which I distributed in the a week leading up to Desmond Tucci's enthronement. And in the end, 100,000 copies of these were distributed. It was an extraordinary uh, a battle. And uh, we also had posters, 1,000 posters printed that we put up on lampposts of, leading into Cape Town, which countered Desmond Tutu's uh, vile liberation theology. And so um, when in the run-up to the enthronement ceremony at the Cathedral of St. George in Cape Town, there was huge amounts of people come from all over the world for this massive um, theater. This this was going to be the biggest um, anti-South African demonstration by getting this known liberation theologian, pro-communist uh, prelate um, uh, instituted in St. George's Cathedral, which is just across the road from Parliament, you know, right in the heart of Cape Town, such a bold statement. So it was a massive mob of Tutu supporters in the streets and a lot of international media present for this event. Well, I was at the airport as the, these people were arriving and handing out these purple booklets, the Archbishop in the Bible, which has got the Archbishop's uh, hats and crown on the cover. And it, it, it looked it looked like it was official. It looked like this could be a program. As these people coming off the planes with their, in their fancy dress with their big hats and their big shepherds, crooks, and so on, um, I was welcoming them and saying, um, welcome to Cape Town, giving them a copy of the Archbishop Bible, saying, enjoy the show. And uh, 
thank you very much, my son, and all that. And, and they came uh, accepting these, assuming these were official. And they, they look official, actually. Well, we were handing out these booklets to people by the hundreds and in the end the thousands as they were arriving at the St. George's Cathedral. And we timed it that three of our people dressed in black walked slowly, solemnly towards the side of St. George Cathedral and laid a wreath solemnly against the stone walls of the building and then stood back in the attitude of prayer. And when they were questioned as to, what does this mean? Why are you doing this? They were told, this is a memory of the Anglican Church. <laughs> there was an explosion of anger and outrage from the mob, and one of the thugs uh, screamed at one of our people, Cindy Leoncinas, and said, we will necklace you. Well, I stepped in as there were more threats and curses following to try and protect Cindy. And as the mob surrounded me, I was trying to why are you distributing these anti-tutu booklets? And I said, they're not anti-tutu. These are pro-Christ. We're calling people back to the Bible. And so I was asked, what do you see is wrong with tutu? I said, well, he's man-centered. He's not Christ-centered. He's, his solutions are political. They're not spiritual. And I was told, do you disapprove of tutu's enthronement as archbishop? I responded, yes, certainly. I believe church leaders should be a man of prayer, not a man of politics. And I was told, but Tutu is a man of the people. <clears throat> well, maybe so, I said, but he's not a man of God. A man of God must be a man of the people, I said. I responded, rubbish. A man of God must be a man of the Bible, capable of preaching repentance to sinful, rebellious mankind. We must not be man-pleasers. We must be those who seek to please God. And I was told, the people have elected Tutu. So I said, yes, quite right. God has not chosen them. People, which people? Uh, the political press has cap catapulted Tutu into this office. Not God, not ordinary church members. Why are you here attacking Tutu, I was asked. So I said, I'm here standing for Christ and calling the church to return to the biblical stance, to reject worldly standards, to return to God. So I was told, you do not belong here. Why have you come? So I turned and I said, why have you come? Are you an Anglican? No, said one. I said, are you an Anglican? I asked another. No, I said, are you a Christian? Do you love Jesus? I'm against apartheid, said someone. I said, the issue is not apartheid. It's God and his relationship with him. Are you born again? I'm against apartheid, came the monotonous parrot cry. Well, fine. We know what you're against, but what are you for? And at this point, the men broke into hateful swearing at me. So I said, okay, now you see, these are the kind of supporters Desmond Tutu has. Well, more of the mob broke out in curses and threats towards me. So I said, I do not see the love of Christ in your eyes. I do not see Christian love in your faces. I only see bitterness and hate. Repent of your evil. Repent of your hatred. Turn from your sins. Turn to Christ. Well, there was a shocked silence. Well, while this conversation was going on, I could see that Bishop Tutu had come out of the side door. And he's standing at the top of the stairs in front of the closed double doors. But they couldn't see because their backs were to the church and they were facing me. And I could see Desmond Tutu was dressed in his full bishop's regalia and he had his large shepherd stick in his hands. And uh, uh, Desmond Tutu was just about to bang on the doors with his crooked stick in preparation for doors to be flung wide and for him to enter in grand procession with the choir singing and all that. But none of the media were on the stairs. And he's agitated. And he's, he's uh, very awkwardly trying to call him back to record this historic event. And uh, they were all gathered around. So finally, when the journalist realized they were missing out on Tutu's grand entrance, they repositioned themselves in a semicircle around Desmond Tutu to record his dramatic entry into the cathedral. And it was this moment of silence as Tutu had his arm raised with his crooked shepherd staff about to strike the doors. And one of our mission workers, John, who's an ex-Rhodesian Light Infantry veteran of the Rhodesian War, John shouted out for everyone to hear, You have chosen Barabbas! 
and Desmond Tutu looked over his shoulder. All the journalists looked around to see who had shot that. They all got the message. And the Sowetan and the Star newspapers reported the next day, a small group of vigorous protesters from Christian Action nearly overshadowed the main event. And, uh, well, yes, we did. And that wasn't the end of the day. Because after the ceremony in St. George's, Tutu held an open-air Eucharist for thousands of people in the Cape showgrounds at Goodwood. And he invited political priest Alan Brusak and Albertina Shasulu to give political speeches. And we were standing at the entrance to this place, too, handing out these purple Archbishop Bible booklets that Miss Scarborough authored as the people streamed and enjoyed the show. Well, these are just some of the battles that we had. And Mrs. Scarborough and I went to many a debate, many a church conference, and we were arguing and fighting these liberation theologians as they were trying to hijack major events. One of the events that we went to was Sackle, 1986. 1986, a Southern Conference of Evangelical Leaders. And uh, uh, we were um, invited as delegates, and this was an attempt to co-opt the evangelical churches into the political agenda of release Mandela, unban the ANC, end the state of emergency, and basically accept the, the whole African National Congress communist agenda, uh, give in, stop fighting, you know, that sort of thing, uh, remove the soldiers from the border, um, uh, stop fighting communism, all that sort of thing. Well, <clears throat> they made a mistake um, because I was invited to be one of the speakers there too. Now, I was an up-and-coming uh, theological graduate and uh, I just graduated the year before uh, from college and I was known to have been going to Mozambique for a few years. So it was assumed, as Mozambique was a communist country, it was assumed by quite a few of those folks at that stage that I was a communist sympathizer because, I mean, who else would be going to a communist country like Mozambique? So they weren't well informed. This is early days of our mission. 1985 had only been going cross-border for about three years. And so at this point, um, I was actually one of the speakers at this event, which I'm sure they regretted, because there was a liberation theologian just before me, Cesar Mulabati, and he he really gave a typical theological justification for communism. So my first words when I stood up to speak immediately after him was, it falls upon me to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And uh, there was this horrified silence as I launched in a full-on attack on liberation theology and what Caesar's just been given. And, and this shocked them because they didn't expect opposition. They didn't know anyone would understand the, the whole liberation theology communist agenda. And they were gaslighting, guilt manipulating these evangelicals into this. And uh, uh, I basically um, upset the apple cart. Well, there was all sorts of extraordinary efforts to try and um, derail that. And I was supported from the uh, floor uh, by Dorothy Scarborough in particular, who's very eloquent and capable. And another missionary, Gerhard Niels, who's a missionary to Muslims. Gerhard Niels is another great friend. He he is the only person I know today who's a veteran of the Second World War that's still alive. He was uh, part of the Hitler Youth, mobilized as a teenager at age 15 in a battle for Berlin. He was given a Panzerfaust and uh, sent out to shoot um, T-34 tanks as the Red Army invaded Berlin, uh, which he did uh, a number of occasions and uh, ended up spending years in concentration camps of the Soviets after the war. Well, uh, it was Gerhard Niels who trained me in Muslim evangelism, very brave missionary, phenomenal amount of work. Well, Gerhard Niels was also then, he also stood up and started pointing out a few home truths. And it didn't take long for the organized to start shouting, all missionaries are racists. And I remember Gerhard Niels saying, 
listen to that. All missionaries are racists. How is that possible? Why would we choose to be missionaries cross-culture if we were racists? Uh, this, this is the most ignorant, self-condemning uh, statement imaginable. And with a lot of logic, he point. well, they got into such a tiz that they declared a day of prayer and fasting to try and bring the unity back. And uh, uh, then they tried, after a day of nobody having food, tried to have a debate on the, the statement they want to come out of this Sackle conference. Um, and they could see that wasn't going their way. So they kept carrying it on until past midnight, hoping people would fade away so that they could have just the hardcore uh, communist sympathizers voting. And they carried on until early hours of the morning and still uh, they could see they weren't going. So then, then said, we're not going to vote uh, here. We'll let everyone go home and pray about this and then we'll have a postal vote. Well, it's easy to rig a postal vote, isn't it? And uh, uh, so we basically derailed the Sackle Conference and nobody believed their postal vote. So that basically was a failure. And they blamed Mrs. Scarborough and Gerhard Nielsen, I. Well, in 1986, uh, 1987, uh, we went to Kirchentag. Kirchentag is the biggest event of the year uh, for the Lutheran Church in Germany. Now, Mrs. Scarborough brought up a Lutheran, of course, and uh, she put together a large group, a very large group, about 18, 19 uh, people from United Christian Action uh, to go through to Germany for the Kirchentag event, where we would have a stall and we would be making a stand against sanctions because the big push at this Kirchentag, which is the biggest Lutheran event of the year, it's it's a misnomer. Kirchentag, you think it's about the church? It wasn't. Um, it was organized by the church, but it wasn't very church orientated. It was very political. And Tag, you would think, is day. Well, it was five days. But anyway, we had in our group a very powerful group. And amongst it included Reverend Finus BC from Quasibant Mission and Pansy Shlopani. Now, Pansy Shlopani is an 18-year-old girl paralyzed in a wheelchair. And uh, her father, Bartholomew Shlopani, was a Politburo member of the Southern Communist Party. And he testified at the Jeremiah Denton, Senator Jeremiah Denton uh, Senate hearings on communist control of uh, revolutionary groups in Africa. He testified that the African National Congress was a puppet of the Southern Council Churches, uh, Southern Communist Party, I should say, the Southern Communist Party controlled the ANC. The, all the leaders of the ANC were effectively Politburo members of the uh, Southern Communist Party, including Nelson Mandela, and that uh, uh, the Southern Communist Party was completely controlled by the KGB, uh, by the Soviet Union, and uh, were uh, effectively just an arm of the Comintern, a communist international. Well, Senator Jeremiah Denton expressed his deep concern for the safety of, of, of Bartholomew Chlopani, and when he returned back to South Africa uh, that December 1982, he and his wife were murdered in their home in Soweto by AK-47 wielding terrorists. And in that same attack that killed her parents, young Pansy was crippled, and she is in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. So we went to this uh, Kirchentag, Church Day, um, 1987, to Frankfurt, Germany. And one of the people that went there was Pansy. And I was, I was pushing in her wheelchair, and I saw communist thugs in Frankfurt at Kirchentag come up to her, shaking boxes of matches in the face saying, we will necklace you. In other words, we'll burn you alive. Intimidating this 18-year-old paraplegic in a wheelchair, can you imagine? And uh, we were there to, to protest against the plans to put sanctions on South African railroad, a communist agenda uh, onto our country and basically betray South African hands of communism. And we faced a lot of opposition. And uh, interestingly, at this Kirchentag, they had pro-abortion displays, but they didn't allow any of the pro-lifers there because that would be too controversial. 
can you imagine? So there were some pro-lifers having a demonstration outside the venue of Kirshentog because they weren't allowed in. And there was a counter demonstration by pro-abortionists who were inside the conference venue. And one of the banners there said, if only Jesus had, had uh, sorry, if only Mary had had an abortion, we wouldn't have these problems today. Uh, a banner in German. And another one, oh, Dr. Ernst, if only your mother had aborted you. Dr. Ernst was one of the pro-life leaders in Germany at that time. And so we, we kind of saw what we were dealing with, the, the anti-Christ, anti-life mentality of so many um, of, of these so-called church leaders, plainly liberation theologians, so hostile, not interested in what black Christians had to say about communism or the ANC, and they certainly were extremely angry at Pansy, who had the audacity to want to speak up for her parents and against those who had murdered her parents and, and crippled her. Uh, so imagine threatening a paraplegic girl of 18 in a wheelchair. At any rate, uh, these are the kind of battles that we fought. And um, at that very conference, Mrs. Scarborough brought some beautiful big pictures, uh, large photographs that had been blown up of missionaries in Africa. And amongst them, it included a Dutch form missionary walking through the river, holding the hands of a line of little black children behind that um, father, the blind school at uh, Dingenstadt, where, where the Dutch form church had a mission station uh, for the blind. And... Uh, they said this picture has to come down, it's paternalistic. Here's another couple of pictures that they also said were paternalistic, uh, which were of um, Dutch form church missionaries um, caring for black people medically and so on uh, in, in mission stations in KwaZulu. And we had to take those posters down. And uh, one of our people, Gunnar Wiebalk, had brought some proteas, protea flowers at, at Johannesburg Airport before leaving to decorate our display table with literature and so on. And they were told to take down the protea flowers because the proteas were racist flowers. Imagine that, God made racist flowers. Proteas are the national flower of South Africa, but that's the kind of pettiness we were dealing with. Well, uh, Mrs. Scarborough was, was tremendous. At, at all of these different battles, uh, we were making a stand, we were fighting, we were exposing them. I remember at that same Kirshentag hearing Alan Busak, who was a guest speaker, because South Africa was the big attack right then, so they had this famous South African liberation theologian, Alan Bussack, as a key speaker at the communion service, would you believe? But Alan Bussack said, out of the ashes of Pretoria will arise the new Jerusalem. In other words, this is classic um, sabotanism. Uh, burn everything down, blow everything up. Out of the ashes will arise a new Jerusalem. You'll build back better if you break everything down first. And so he's a classic liberation theologian. These were all battles in the World War of Worldviews. We were fighting the good fight of faith. We were exposing and opposing false teaching, unbiblical heresies, Marxist liberation theology, and other threats to the Christian church. So Dorothy Scarborough and I were involved in debates with liberation theologians in townships, at church conferences, on university campuses. Uh, it, it was extraordinary. And, and the courage of this uh, woman, Dorothy Scarborough, was faithful, dependable, courageous, principled, steadfast, fervent. She was dedicated and she was relentless. She is a formidable defender of the faith. And uh, I don't know anyone else in our country who did more to fight liberation theology and other threats to the church than Dorothea Scarborough. Her gospel defense league continues to this day. She was a founder member of the Reformation Society back in 2005. And for 15 years, she attended all of our Thursday night Reformation Society meetings. And she's a founder member of our Livingston Fellowship in 2006. And for 
15 years attended those services. In fact, right down to our Good Friday service this year, she had to be carried in because she was not able to walk, but uh, she did not want to miss. She said, this will probably be my last service here, but she did not want to miss that. She is an enthusiastic supporter of our Reformation 500 movement uh, centered around the 2017 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing 95 Theses. She never missed a Reformation Day event at the Huguenot Monument in Frontship or any other, other major Reformation 500 events. And even as her body grew weaker and older, her mind was still sharp and her analysis was incisive and her convictions were like iron. Dorothy Scott was gracious and friendly, but she had a doctrinal backbone of steel. She would not back down. She would not bow. She would not bend on any matter of biblical faithfulness or truth or principle. And so uh, this is somebody who really knew what it was to be loyal to the Lord. In 2 Chronicles 69, we read, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to show himself strong on those whose heart is loyal to him. And Dorothy Scarber had a heart that proved to be loyal to our Lord Jesus, and he strengthened her. And uh, there's no doubt that she was somebody who stood firm for the Lord. She opposed evil. She exposed evil. Who will rise up for me against the wicked? Who will make a stand for me against the workers of iniquity? And, and Dorothy Scarborough certainly stood firm. She spoke out. Uh, she was somebody who turned many to righteousness. Daniel 12, 3 says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so by turning many to righteousness, many people uh, to turn uh, to Christ and to the five solos of the Reformation by faithfully standing up for our Lord and contending for the faith once delivered to the saints. She really epitomized the, I've fought the good fight of faith, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. And uh, Ecclesia Reformata, Reformanda Est, the church having been reformed must continue to be reformed. Semper Reformata, always reforming. Uh, a Mighty Fortress as Our God was one of her favorite hymns, and we sang that at a memorial service. And so if people want to learn more about Dorothea Scarborough and, and the fight against the World Council Churches and, the, and Liberation Theology, uh, they can go on to the Gospel Defense League website. Uh, Gospel Defense League is a ministry that uh, I have now got the responsibility of because when uh, she was um, retiring and, and getting weaker and sicker, she handed it over to me. So you know, if people go on to www.gospeldefenseleague.org, they will see a tribute to her, pictures of her as a youth, uh, town of Lubbock, uh, in ashes after being firebombed uh, by Bomber Harris's uh, RAF, and uh, a lot of other things like um, articles that we've produced for newsletters on the show that we did with you once, 1666 and the Sabatine Roots of New World Disorder, uh, produced as newsletters in, with pictures. Uh, Mrs. Scarborough's uh, funeral service, memorial service are also able to be viewed as videos there as well. So if anyone's interested, and also you can read the Archbishop in a Bible booklet there. So if you go on gospeldefenseleague.org, uh, you'll see all that. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And uh, I want to pay my own personal tribute to Dorothea and Charles Scarborough, uh, wonderful people um, whose work touched so many. And um, it's interesting, Peter, because when you were speaking, another name that jumped out to me that I wasn't aware of was Gerhard Niels. Um, you said that he was the only person you knew who was a survivor, still living survivor of World War II, how he actually fought against the Soviets. Um, 
and it led me to thinking about other things because um, I thought, well, who do I know who I've you know I've spoken to who's who's one of our seniors, and I guess because of the German connection, I thought about James Back, who you will be familiar with as the author of the books Other Losses and Crimes and Mercies about the concentration camps set up for the German people after the end of World War Two. These open air. Uh, places where so many people died that they don't want to talk about and that in turn led me to thinking about the late great Rick Adams who does the disclaimer for this show so he's on every show Mm. Um, and I believe I I feel I have to mention this I have a duty to it seems like Rick passed away years and years ago but his last show was in late March of last year with John Friend and uh, Art from Philly so it's amazing how long it seems since I heard Rick. And I never went back to listen to any of his shows, and I've got loads and loads of them here in the folder. So I'm going to go back, I'm going to listen to Rick, and I think that there's been part of this show with your tribute to Dorothea has brought back memories of Rick, and I really need to go back and hear him because I think at the time it, it was very sudden, it wasn't expected, and... Um, I, I kind of moved on, I guess. I did a tribute to, to Rick and other people. John Statmiller did a fine tribute to Rick Adams. Um, it's it's amazing how time seems to go so much quicker today. Um, to think that it's only been a year and three months just under, it seems like it was years and years ago. So, Peter, before we go, any comments? And can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? Yes, I think it's so important that we learn from the older generation. And, you know, we always regret when one of these stalwarts passed away that we didn't ask them more questions. And uh, I treasure the many, many, many hundreds of hours I spent with Scarborough over tea and lunch and supper and after services and just asking questions. And there's so much we've got to learn from them. But even now, I think oh, there's so many other questions I wish I'd asked as well. And uh, uh, we must we must record them. We must ask questions. We must be sure to treasure and go through their correspondences and their photographs. Now, I, I've had great joy going through Mrs. Scarborough's uh, photos and albums and scanning and putting them into the memorial service and so on to to be able to and on the web that people can can learn something more of another era. And she is my mo- mother's era. My mother was also uh, being bombed in Germany and, and Berlin uh, as a young girl. She is a few years older than Dorothea Scarborough, but uh, they were the same era. And, uh, uh, you know, we need to learn from these people. And I've learned so much from people like Gerhard Nielsen, these, these elders in the faith. Who, they, they've got a graciousness, but they, they've been through so much. But it reminds me of scarred lions. When you see the scars in lion, you think, well, whatever tried to kill him, <laughs> oh, he was stronger than that. And uh, so... Uh, these battle-scarred warriors, there's lots to learn from them. If people want to speak to me or contact me, my email is peter at frontline.org.za. Peter at frontline.org.za, I guess Americans would pronounce it. Or you can visit our website, www.frontlinemissionsa.org. But particularly encourage you to look on the gospeldefenseleague.org website uh, for the tribute to Mrs. Dorothea Scarborough. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And I want to leave you uh, with one last comment I remember about Rick. Uh, He referred to the mainstream media as these princes of the power of the airwaves, which I thought was rather amusing. And I wanted to share that. (laughs) That's appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. 
Peter, fantastic having you on as always, delighted that you join us each week. And folks, again, you've got a bonus show today with Gemma O'Doherty, a video that will be linked to in the post for this show. Peter and I will be back with you next week. You have been listening to the real story of a formidable fighter for the faith, Dorothea Scarborough. I want to thank all of you for listening. I will, of course, be back with you tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day. And bye for now.